0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah chapter six, as we continue in our series through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter six. We've seen in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah Isaiah, that the the people of God in Judah are confused. They are failing to live in the way that God has called them to. They look like the nations that surround them rather than like the new Jerusalem that they are supposed to be striving towards. They are, chapter 5, we saw a fruitless vineyard rather than a fruitful one that's blessing the nations. And we're faced as we come to the end of chapter 5 with the question of how can they be changed? You remember the last verse of chapter 5 is this dark, Picture it says, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its cloud. How can Judah be changed? And not only how, but, but can they be changed? Are they beyond hope? Are we beyond hope? We might not feel sometimes the despair that, that Judah may have felt. Uh, maybe we've not considered the picture of of Judah, we've considered this picture of Judah and maybe we just don't feel as bad as they are. Maybe we think that God will make an exception for us, which I think is what Judah thought, uh, that they were, eh, not that bad. On the other hand, maybe you do feel despair. Maybe you feel as if there's no hope for you to change. There's no hope of redemption. There's no place for forgiveness. I think Isaiah may have thought that as well, that there was no hope for Judah. But the fact that he places Isaiah 6, which is his call, here in chapter, he places his call here in chapter 6 rather than in chapter 1, it seems to indicate that that Isaiah wanted his fellow Israelites to see that he too was broken before God, just as they have been described in, in chapter 5, and that the woes of judgment weighed on him as well and on his own sinful heart. And in identifying himself right alongside sinful Judah, his salvation and his purification and his commission that are here in chapter 6, hold forth this hope that Judah too can be redeemed. Judah can be cleansed. There's hope for them to become this new Jerusalem. Isaiah 6 tells us that if we would understand ourselves rightly, we we must begin by seeing God clearly. That's our big idea for this afternoon. If we would understand ourselves rightly, if we would have a right perspective about who we are, if we would understand ourselves rightly, we must begin by seeing God clearly. Sometimes we think we need to understand ourselves more in order to understand ourselves. But Isaiah chapter six tells us that if we would understand ourselves rightly, we have to begin by seeing God clearly. And it's in seeing God clearly that we understand who we are. In a similar vein, in one of my favorite quotes, A.W. Tozer has written this in his book, um, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says on the first page, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous or serious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Worry, anger, depression, laziness, addiction, seeking popularity, seeking approval, hating other people, hating yourself, despair, pride, they all have many contributing factors. But one of the key driving forces behind why we do what we do and think what we think and feel what we feel is our understanding of who God is. If we get that wrong, if we don't understand who God is, we are on the road to getting everything else wrong. And so we're told here that if we would rightly understand ourselves, we have to begin by clearly seeing God. As we read this passage in a moment, there are a number of things to look for just to understand the structure of this passage, which is always helpful to, to get to the to the heart of it. So you might notice that there's a dialogue happening here. There's a, a lot of statements. There's some questions and some answers. Uh, in particular, you might note uh, Isaiah's three responses. Isaiah says speaks three different times. And so take note of those as we read through it. Um, another way to frame this passage is going to be how we'll outline things today. And it's in four different scenes. So I'll repeat these throughout the, the sermon, but I'll just give them to you now. Verses one through four give us a vision of God. Verse five gives us a view of ourselves. Verses six and seven show a cleansing of sin and then verses 8 through 13 show a commissioning to speak. So a vision of God at first, a view of self in verse 5, a cleansing of sin in verses 6 and 7, and then a commissioning to speak verses 8 through 13. So we'll go through that as we go along, but um with those things in mind, let's read Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 13, one of the most beautiful chapters I think in the in the Bible. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, their, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a 10th remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. If we would understand ourselves rightly, we must first begin by seeing God clearly. And so we begin in verses one through four with a vision of God. We're told that Isaiah's vision and call came in the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, the books of Kings and, and Chronicles tell us that Uzziah was a king of Judah, that he walked in the ways of the Lord, at least in part, and at least in the first part of his reign, about the first 40 years probably, Um he was a king who knew great prosperity. You can read about this in Second Chronicles twenty-six. We'll read some of Second Chronicles twenty-six if you want to turn there. Um, but in the first part there of Second Chronicles six, we read about all this prosperity that he amassed. The, he led Judah in multiple military victories. He expanded their wealth and their and their territory, and things were going well for Judah underneath the reign of of King Uzziah. But the second part of that chapter, Second Chronicles twenty-six, beginning in verse sixteen. We read this of Uzziah, it says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, To burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. We read there that the the pride of Uzziah and his presumption to enter the temple led to his destruction. And while he began well, he lived out his final days, separated from his family, separated from God's people, excluded from the house of the Lord, calling out unclean everywhere that he went. As Isaiah opens this chapter and his call, he calls to mind a king whose reign did not end well because of his pride. It also seems to be no coincidence that Isaiah's vision of the Lord occurs where? It occurs in the temple the location of Uzziah's pride. In contrast to that, we're going to see Isaiah act very differently when he's in this temple before the presence of the Lord, very differently from Uzziah. And we're going to see that God, the king over all, is seen in a kind of majesty that makes Uzziah look like an ant to be squashed. God is the exalted king far above any king like Uzziah. Isaiah tells us that that he saw the Lord then, after he tells us the time period, that he saw the Lord. He says that though we know that no one has ever seen God, we're told. And in fact, Isaiah describes everything around God and everything that that fills this temple without actually directly describing God, if you notice that. It it seems almost like this picture of God's omnipresence, that, that heaven is... God's throne and the earth is his footstool. And it's almost as if Isaiah is describing the, the bottom half of the Lord in this temple where heaven and earth meet. So you might even think about God sitting on his throne and his feet and his train fill the, the temple and the, the rest of him is exalted above where Isaiah can even see. But this is the place in the temple where, where heaven and earth meet. And that's where God is is sitting. Even without a description of God directly, all that Isaiah says communicates the majesty and the the greatness of God. God's throne represents his power and his authority, and his exaltation uh, speaks of his sovereign rule over all. His presence uh, is in the form of these robes that fill the entire temple, speaking of this majestic presence that was to be at the center of the life of his People and also the hope of the glory that one day will fill all of heaven and all of earth. The seraphs, the seraphim are mentioned. They're literally the, the burning ones is what that means. They surround the throne and they are serving the master and king who is seated in front of them. They have these six wings with two of them. They cover their eyes, possibly because of God's radiant majesty, uh, maybe because... They're not focused on seeing the Lord. They're focused on hearing the Lord and obeying everything that he says. With two other wings, they cover their feet, maybe a sign of humility. And with two other wings, they fly. That give us this picture of constant motion around God sitting on the throne. They're always going around ready to do God's bidding, ready to do whatever he says. And as they fly, they're, they're calling out. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The the repetition of a word in Hebrew functions like a superlative form. So if you know anything about language, uh, there's holy, there's holier, and there's holiest. Um, Hebrew does not have those forms. And so this threefold repetition communicates that God is the holiest of all. He is exalted and he is identified as holy. Holy. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says this, the aspect of his character on which God laid the most stress in the Old Testament was his holiness. The angel song which Isaiah heard in the temple with its emphatic repetitions, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, could be used as a motto text to sum up the theme of the whole Old Testament. The basic idea which the word holy expresses is that of separation or separateness. When God is declared to be holy, the thought is of all that separates him and sets him apart and makes him different from his creatures, his greatness and his purity. Of this vision and of God and of God and and of his holiness, Barry Webb says this, heaven and earth merge in this blinding vision of the one who is above all holy, a term which includes both transcendence and righteousness. So God's separateness, his otherness, and also his his purity and his justice. The accent here, Webb writes, in in the vision is on transcendence. He is exalted and his rule is universal. And then in the latter part of the chapter, we see his righteousness. One more thought on the holiness of God. Mautier says that God's holiness is his total and unique moral majesty. He writes holiness is God's hidden glory. Glory is God's all-present holiness. This is who God has revealed to be for us. He is holy, holy, holy. He is great and he is pure. He is transcendent and righteous. He possesses total and unique moral majesty. Understandably so, then the final image of this scene in verse four is that the entire temple is shaking and is being filled with smoke. We're told in Exodus 19.18 that when God's presence descended on Sinai, the whole mountain shook and the top of that mountain was engulfed in a cloud. And so here too. The place where God's presence comes is shaken and smoke fills this room. And the smoke seems to be a kind of grace to Isaiah that would shield his eyes from the unfiltered glory of God. And so brothers and sisters, friends, behold the glory and the majesty of God. Our God is not some slightly exalted king. He's not a weak ruler. He is completely separate. He is totally other. He is perfect in power. He is pure and spotless. He is the embodiment of righteousness, the definition of righteousness and of justice and of holiness. He dwells in unapproachable light. And if we don't look at this God who no one has ever seen, then we will never know who we are or why we have been created. It's in seeing God then that Isaiah sees himself and he sees his people rightly. So verse five gives us a view of self, a view of self. Verse five simply says, and I said, woe is me for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The, the six woes you remember of chapter five, which Isaiah pronounced against the nation of Judah, informed the seventh woe that's here in this chapter, which Isaiah pronounces not on Judah, but on who? On himself. He declares that he is lost, that he is ruined, that he is undone. Why? Because he is a man of unclean lips. What does that mean? Well, he's like Judah, Judah stumbled and fell according to Isaiah 3.8 because their speech and their deeds were against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. We also know Jesus talks about how our words are rooted in our hearts, that it's out of the abundance of our heart that our mouth speaks. And so Isaiah knows the brokenness of his heart. And so Isaiah also realizes that, that he can't join in this chorus of singing holy, holy, holy because of his unclean lips. And he sees not only his own sin, but the greatness of the sin of his people. He is sinful and he is surrounded by a people of unclean lips. It's interesting that all of this is made clear, not because Isaiah looks deeply at his own sin. How does Isaiah understand his sin? It's because the end of verse five, he says, for I have seen The King, the Lord of hosts, it's in seeing God that he understands his sin. What we're comparing ourselves to has a lot to do with how we perceive ourselves. So we could all go outside and have a long jump contest and someone would win. Uh, If Jordan was here, it'd probably be between him and Keith, I think, that's my guess. Um, And they might feel a little bit proud. They'd be the GFC long jump champions. Um, But if then they thought that they should go and try out for the Olympic track team, um, sorry, Keith, they would find that they fall far short of the great long jumpers of the world. Who you are comparing yourself to is very important, isn't it? Especially when it comes to holiness and righteousness. Because if we look at this picture of God, then we understand what Paul writes when he says that we all fall short of the glory of God. If all we ever do is consider our own sin, we will not rightly understand how offensive our sin is. We will, in fact, make excuses for our thoughts, words, and actions. We'll we'll compare ourselves to others and we'll think, well, I'm not as bad as her. We'll look at the culture and decide that since something has been accepted as appropriate by the masses, well, it must be okay, I guess. We'll fall into the trap of Isaiah 520. We'll call evil good. We'll call light, darkness. We'll call bitter, sweet. We'll be filled with pride and arrogance. We'll be like Uzziah. We'll be like the people of Judah that we've seen described in chapters one through five. And we will not rightly see our wickedness and our evil. But if we would step into this throne room with Isaiah, if we would go into the temple of the Holy One of Israel, then we will see our sin for what it is we will rightly then despair of having any hope of ever measuring up to God's standard of righteousness. We will know how undone we are, how helpless our situation is. You know, this vision helps us to see the problem with a, a works-based salvation. Works, but The problem is, is twofold. It, it stems first from a wrong understanding of our own moral inability, but it also flows from a, a view of God that looks nothing like this vision found in Isaiah 6. God is not exalted and lifted up in his purity. And so we assume that we can get reasonably close to his character through our good works. Until we see the holiness of God, we're not going to cry out in repentance and despair, woe is me and woe is everyone around me, no matter how righteous they seem. And if we don't humbly present God to others in all of his holiness, if we don't go to our unbelieving friends and, and show the greatness of God, if we begin simply with, with the fact that God is one who, who loves us and has come to save us, yes, that's right, but we also need to see that he is exalted. The incarnation, the fact that Christ has come doesn't make sense. It, doesn't, it loses its power if we don't understand how exalted he is. And if we don't present God in his holiness to those apart from Christ, then they will never see their need for a Savior. Isaiah forces us to ask ourselves what do we make of God? What do we think about who God is? What comes into your mind when you think about God? Is your attitude more like Uzziah, who thought that he could just sort of waltz into God's presence and do whatever he wanted? Or is it informed by this vision of Isaiah that Isaiah has? So that you would despair in his presence and say, I am ruined, I am undone. From that place of seeing ourselves rightly though, where do we go? I mean, is there any hope for us? Or are we just going to be consumed by the majesty of God? Was there any hope for sinful Judah to be cleansed? Was there any hope for wicked Jerusalem to become the holy city, the new Jerusalem? Had God done everything that he could for his vineyard, was it was it now time to just abandon it and let it be destroyed? This pivotal chapter in the book of, of Isaiah, it not only shows who God is um, and who we are, but, but it shows hope. This is the hope that Isaiah is clinging to. It's a hope for himself and it's a hope for Judah and it's a hope for anyone who will call out, woe is me in the presence of God. It's a hope for that begins to come to light in verses six and seven, which describe a cleansing of sin. A cleansing of sin. Here's what you have to remember. As as high and exalted as the Lord is, where are they? They're in the temple. And what is the temple? The temple is the place that God has designed for heaven and earth to meet. This is the place that God himself set up so that his people would have a way to know him and to be forgiven. The temple is a place of holiness, but it's also a place of hope. Immediately after his cry of despair, this, this seraph flies to Isaiah. I always thought he did it of his own will, but when you start thinking about who these seraphs were, no, this is something that God directs this seraph to do. He says, go to Isaiah. But before he goes to Isaiah, he goes to the altar, and he takes a coal and he brings it to Isaiah and he touches Isaiah's lips, which he had just rightly said were unclean. Where's the source of Isaiah's hope? It's the altar. It's the altar where sacrifice was made for sins and for the people. And Isaiah could find no other hope except for there. Leviticus 17:11, the Lord says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In the light of God's holiness, Isaiah's sin, Judah's sin, and our sin cannot just be dismissed. It can't just simply be ignored. It has to be paid for. And the penalty of sin is death. But the altar is the place of substitutionary death, of atonement. It's the place where where the death of another purchased forgiveness And cleansing. And that's why the seraph doesn't simply come to Isaiah and say, Don't worry about it, Isaiah. I know you're sinful, but God's really kind and He'll accept you just the way you are. That's not what the seraph says. He brings this coal of purification from the altar and He says, Isaiah, you're right. You are a man of unclean lips, but because of the sacrifice of another, Your sin, which is all too real, is taken away. It's atoned for. This happened apart from any work on Isaiah's part. God initiates it because God is the author of salvation from beginning to end. And it was an act of taking away sin and paying for it completely. If you are familiar with the New Testament wonder of salvation through Christ, then I hardly need to connect the dots for you and bring you to Jesus. But I will. <laughs> Especially in this Christmas season, we can remember that, that God in his love and because of his righteousness, because of his holiness, made a way for us. And he did it not by sending a seraph with a coal from the altar. How does he do it? He sends his son to die as the sacrifice for our sins on the altar of the cross. The Holy One of Israel becomes a man. The righteous one is tried as a criminal. Think about that picture of Isaiah 6, 1-4. And then hear these words of Philippians 2 that you know well. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's remember that our God is a is a triune God. And so this image that Isaiah Isaiah sees, this is not just the Father. This, This is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so it's this same glory that Jesus leaves to be born, to be placed in a manger, to be mocked rather than worshiped by seraphim, to be crucified. Why? So that he might come to all who would repent, He might come to everyone who says, woe is me in light of our sin and the holiness of God. And he might say, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I've taken it on myself. I've I've laid myself on the altar for your salvation. If Jesus doesn't come to earth and die the death that we deserve, then for all eternity, we cry out, woe is me. I am undone. But because he has, everyone who repents and believes can have their lips cleansed so that we can boldly approach the throne of God. We can cry out, holy, holy, holy. We can cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We can say that because Christ has cleansed our lips. He's cleansed our hearts. And then with our cleansed lips, do you know what else we say? here I am. Send me. So that's verses 8 through 13, this commission to speak. Out of Isaiah's purification that comes, comes this commission to go. And it flows from from Isaiah saying, I want to go. The Lord is speaking here and and he says, "Who, who will we send for us? It could be that he's speaking to the, as the Trinity, it could be that he's speaking of this thing called the divine council, but whatever it is, he's saying, who will we send? Who will go and speak for us? And now that Isaiah's lips have been purged, he says, I'll go. Uh, In the greatness of this temple scene, little little Isaiah says, I'll do it, Lord. (laughs) He reminds me of of Frodo. Remember, he's sitting around that council and and there's all these people that are much more regal and larger than him, literally larger. And he says, I'll take the ring to Mordor, but I don't know the way. I love that part. The humility says, I'll do it, but I don't know the way. And and Isaiah feels that way. "I'll, I'll do it, Lord. I don't know what I'm getting into, but I'll do it. And like the path to Mordor, the path of taking God's word to the world is not easy. Those words of verses 9 and 10, Jesus and Paul both quote those words. They remind us that the, the human heart, apart from God's grace, is hardened against the message of the gospel. God describes for Isaiah how Judah is not going to listen to him, and yet he needs to speak until until they all leave, even until exile comes, until even the faithful remnant looks like it's going to be wiped out. Isaiah, you have to keep talking. You have to keep declaring. Declaring the good news of the gospel doesn't get easier because no human heart, including our own, wants to rightly consider the majesty of God and his or her own sinfulness and need. Nobody wants to think about that, but we have to keep on speaking. We have to keep on declaring the holiness of God and declaring repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ into the darkness. We have to announce that there is hope because there is always hope. There's hope for everyone. In fact, I love how this chapter ends because it ends with a note of hope and it's a really mysterious one. And it's one that we probably won't fully understand until we get to chapter 11. It says this strange phrase, the holy seed is its stump. What does that mean? The holy seed is its stump. This is the, the hope of a holy seed that's going to spring to life from the stump that is Judah. Judah is cut down in judgment. And yet, like a flower that fights through the cracks in the concrete, God makes a way even in the face of judgment and despair. This seed survives. The line of David persists. The vine resurrects. And Jesus is the seed. Jesus is the shoot from the stump of Jesse who pronounces life over our death and hope over all of our despair. If we would rightly understand ourselves, we have to begin by clearly seeing God. What a grace that God has given us, a vision of who he is here. Such a vision is going to help us to see ourselves rightly, to to be humbled by and to rejoice in the glory of salvation. And to joyfully say then, here am I, send me. I'll go as a witness of your gospel, Lord. Sometimes maybe we don't take the message of the gospel in the way that we should. It could be because we don't think about the holiness and the greatness of God and what he has done for us in our sinfulness. The message of Jesus that we're called to take is of hope for all people. It's the message of Jesus who humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. And then we're told at the end of Philippians chapter chapter two that because of that humility, did Jesus stay humiliated? No, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's something about that cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's true and yet it's not, isn't it? That we're still waiting for this day when the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it will happen one day when Christ returns. And so let's end just by saying all praise to our King, who is holy, 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 and yet who has come to save us and who will come again so that the whole earth will be filled with his glory.